Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. series poll faith politics the future of america glad you're with us today if you're watching online or one of our campuses uh, i'm pastor tim welcome it's election season politics is in the air it's kind of a buzz about thing and uh this week has been kind of fun just to see kind of the public response lots of emails and texts from both conservatives and liberals across both sides of the aisle weighing in on the issues in fact pastor tom had a fun uh text exchange uh this past thursday um, he tweeted from his iPhone, WWJVF, uh, who would Jesus vote for? And what's crazy is he got a reply back from Jesus, okay, who tweeted, look at this. Hey, Kangsta, thanks for the shout out. I'd vote if I could, but I'm not a U.S. citizen. It's no secret who I'd vote for. And then he put the hashtag forward 2012, you know, uh, which kind of has the Obama, you know, slogan. And it's kind of crazy out there. We're like, First off, who has a Jesus account on Twitter? That is a real thing. We thought it was kind of funny. Tom actually tweeted back. He said, uh, Jesus, you tweet? What else do you do? And he replied back, confront hypocrisy, restore broken lives, spread God's word. Sometimes I watch Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> Gordon Ramsay's thoughts. <laughs> you got to love how technology elevates the conversation. Isn't that it's a wonderful thing? That actually is our goal for this series, believe it or not. Uh, not just to uh, take one side or the other or slap Jesus on a certain political campaign, but rather we're asking a higher question, and that is, is it possible the message of Christ actually transcends politics? Is, is God's vision for our, our country, our world, actually bigger, loftier than these binary either-or choices that were presented at election time. You know, are you red state or are you blue state? Are you Republican or Democrat? Because we all know Jesus is a conservative. It's the Holy Spirit who's a liberal. You know, they're, they're these binary things. And, and what we saw last week in the Bible is that it's more relevant than ever. Because in Jesus' day, the biggest political wedge issue was taxes. You remember this? Both parties tried to force Jesus into a corner. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Either or, but Jesus was other. He refused to take the partisan bait and instead elevated the conversation. He said, you know, you guys are all concerned about money, but, but where's your real security? Are you trusting in God or the government for your salvation? Especially when the, the economic bottom kind of falls out of your country. Notice your currency has a picture on it of Caesar, but whose image are you made in? Who stamped his image on you? If you believe you're made in the image of God, I want you to think a bigger thought about the issues in our world. Do you really think like any, any type of man-made government is finally going to get to the core root behind poverty or the breakdown of the family? Do you think you can legislate morality? or force people to care for others? 
in Jesus' view, the government of man was very, very limited. So whenever Christ's followers engage in political dialogue, Jesus teaches us to avoid easy answers. The gospel is a lot more nuanced than these soundbite solutions offered on cable news. He teaches us to love our enemies. In Christ, it's possible to profoundly disagree with someone on political issues without having to assassinate their character. To call them a godless socialist who's going to ruin our country or a cold-hearted capitalist who cares nothing about the poor. In essence, Jesus invites everybody to elevate the conversation, to think a bigger thought about the issues than who's right, who's wrong, and personally get involved in serving the poor, in adopting a child, and caring for the sick or the elderly. He says, if I begin to transform your heart, you're going to begin living differently. When you begin living in the kingdom of God, instead of just arguing about kingdom values, there would be a profound shift in our whole world. I'm convinced of that, guys. I believe that with all my heart. You have great power. Not just at the ballot box every four years, but in your day-to-day -day interactions in your school, in your office, the boardroom, wherever it is, are you leveraging that influence for the good of others? Or is it just to get on the winning side of the debate? We want to elevate the conversation, Liquid, and our Bible is our guide for that. And what's fun today is that we're approaching this with the Bible in, in one hand and an iPhone in the other. Everyone got their phone out? Can you take your phone out? Did anybody, by the way, get the new iPhone? Did anyone pick up the new iPhone? If you did, would you see me after the service? Because God told me someone wants to give me the new iPhone today. Just see me after the service, all right? That'd be great. Let's begin with today's first live uh, poll question, because our topic today is church and state, and this is a volatile combination. People get very anxious when they hear that phrase, you know, separation of church and state. So let's make that our first question. That phrase, separation of church and state, was that first established by the Constitution, the First Amendment, was it the Supreme Court who established that, or was it all of the above, actually, who affirms that, or none of the above? What do you think it is? Text your answer in. Uh, this is kind of like a little civics class to 22333. And what's interesting is this is actually not really an opinion question. This is factual, as you can probably tell. Those of you with like a law or a political science background, take a look at what people are saying. Oh, interesting. Okay. About 30% say that's in the Constitution. A little, little more like 5% First Amendment. Supreme Court, about 20%. All of the above, 10%, none of the above is now leading at about 40%. Very interesting, okay? You can keep texting as I talk. Because that, that phrase, separation of church and state, does not appear in the Constitution, actually. The First Amendment is about freedom of religion, okay? That phrase, separation of church and state, first appeared in a letter from President Thomas Jefferson in 1802 to a bunch of Baptists in Connecticut. And in that letter, Jefferson referenced the First Amendment, and he wrote this. He said, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. This is the first mention ever of this metaphor of a wall between church and state. So actually, the correct answer is none of the above. Jefferson was the first to pen that phrase in his letter, and it was eventually quoted by the Supreme Court in 1878 and then in a series of cases starting in 47. But today, that's a widely accepted principle of American politics, this noting that there's a distance between the relationship of, of the government and of churches. Never forget this, guys. Freedom of religion was established to protect the church from the state, guaranteeing us we could worship any way we want in public. We're enjoying that today. 
unfortunately, in our culture, it's kind of got twisted a little bit, right? Freedom of religion, some people think, means freedom from religion. You got to ban prayer in schools or take the Ten Commandments down as if, like, the state needs to be protected from the church. But originally, it was meant the other way around, to protect churches from government interference. Church and state, there's a natural tension between the two. Ever since Jefferson first penned those words in 1802, and that's really what I want to address today. As Christians, how do we live in this tension? How do we engage in the public square? Because around election time, it's very common in evangelical circles uh, to kind of promote the idea that America is a Christian nation. Um, I got a mailer the other day, for instance, and uh, it said, uh, please donate money. We got to take America back for God. In in fact, let's just go live on that one, okay? Live poll question number two. America is a Christian nation. Would you agree with that statement, disagree, or you're not sure? You might agree and say, you know what, yeah, founding fathers, okay, right now it's 100%. Most people saying, yeah, it's a Christian nation. We have founding fathers who were maybe Christian, maybe deists. Disagree is going up, though, now. This is interesting, kind of split in half. Everybody has an opinion. This is very interesting. No one is unsure about this. Everybody is certain they got the answer. Okay, that's good. Because that's a very interesting, when you say America is a Christian nation, what you're saying is that a nation, a state, could have a religious identity. And and most Christians, we're in a church, would assume, well, this must be a very positive thing. You know, we're just celebrating our Judeo-Christian heritage of the founding fathers. But that's actually not where I'm headed today, because I don't think that's what the Bible proposes. In fact, I want to challenge this idea that church and state being joined together are a good thing, when one is leveraged for the sake of the other. Because if you take the time to look at what the scriptures say about this issue of two kingdoms, the kingdom of of God and the kingdom of man, church and state, you'll see that they operate around very different assumptions. And history shows us that whenever we try to leverage one in order to advance the agenda of the other, the results can be toxic to the testimony of Christ. So turn with me to Matthew 20. I want to show you how Jesus taught on this. Um, We printed this in your notes. I want to show you how this works. This is our political text for the day, and it is about politics. I love this. In Matthew 20, verse 25 says this, Jesus called his disciples together, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you can stop there because this is a famous exchange that Jesus has with his followers. Most people don't realize there's politics behind it. He's addressing this issue of political power. That's the essence of what politics is about. Who has the power? Who wields authority over other people? And Jesus is juxtaposing two very different styles of government to here with his followers. He's like, there are two kinds of kingdoms. There's the kingdom of man, which operates on power over people, right? It says, the Jewish audience, the Gentiles lord it over you. They wield authority over you, power over. They have a say over you. They have power over the people. If you're on the throne, if you're in the Oval Office, you have power over the populace. And that's why people argue about politics. The disciples are literally arguing over who gets to be in power 
when Jesus sets up his kingdom, if you look at verse 20, it says, the mother of Zebedee, uh, Zebedee's son, so this was James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of Jesus. Look at this, I love this. She goes, uh, Jesus goes, what is it you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. In other words, a woman comes to Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, what's the desire of your heart? And her answer is, I want my boys to have political power, like the Kennedy clan. I love those boys. They're so handsome. They're always, you know, in charge. Remember this, guys. At this moment, the Jewish people were praying that God would bring a political or military savior who would take on Caesar and deliver Israel from the Roman Empire. And here comes Jesus preaching this message about the kingdom of God. Remember this? The kingdom of God is here. And people heard that as a political message. The word kingdom comes from the Greek word basileia, which means government. So when Jesus came with his gospel or his good news, he was literally saying, guys, the government of God is now here. And people were like, we love it, a new government. The 12 disciples especially loved this because they were at the grassroots level. <laughs> they had all the passion of the tea party. They're like, we got a brand new message that's never been heard before. We got a fresh candidate named Jesus. He is going to sweep into power because he's got God on his side. Let me show you a fascinating artifact. This is an ancient campaign poster that was unearthed by archaeologists in Jerusalem. I feel like I've seen it before somewhere. Obviously, just kidding. But that's kind of how people saw Jesus. They're like, he's the hope of the world. He's the chosen one. Yeah? The Messiah. This is the guy who's going to save us from Caesar. He's going to overthrow Rome and bring in this new government called the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus got so popular at one point, the scriptures say that he had to slip away because the crowd tried to want to make him king by force. So in the ancient world, the kingdom was a government, and the king sat on a throne. And guess what? The most powerful person in his government would sit on his right. That's where we say, my right-hand man. He, he, he uses the power, the other on his left. And basically, this lady comes to Jesus, and she's like, Jesus, when you set up your government... Can, can you pick my boys for top posts in your cabinet? Because my son John would make an excellent secretary of defense. Uh, they call him son of thunder. It has a ring to it. It's wonderful. That's what, that's what Jesus' followers are arguing over. Who gets to sleep in the Lincoln bedroom? Me. Pick me. Pick me, not him. They're jockeying for position in God's government. There's a reason they're called the disciples. Jesus hasn't even announced his candidacy, and they're arguing over who gets to sit next to him in the situation room. You sit on the right, I'll sit on the left. They, they, and Jesus just shakes his head, and he just says, um, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. <laughs> Nothing like confidence, right? It must be Americans. Uh, <laughs> Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left isn't for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. <laughs> Surprise. The infighting begins among the twelve grassroots activists. Again, I'm so glad that 2,000 years later we're beyond these petty politics, aren't you? It's just so refreshing. So Jesus takes this moment arguing over power to teach a lesson. He's like, I want to spotlight the difference between how the state operates and the church operates, between the government of God and the government of man, because they operate completely different in their use of power. 
the kingdom of man primarily uses power over people, okay? In other words, that's where you see it there. It says, the Gentiles lord it over you. Their high officials exercise authority over you. They enforce their will on you. But the kingdom of God is about power under people. You come under them to humbly serve like a slave, like a servant. You meet their needs with compassion and sincerity, and you love them sacrificially. It's a Calvary kind of love. That's the kind of power that my father uses to run his kingdom. He runs it with a threat of love, not legislation. Through power under, not over people. So if you want to be first in my government, you need to be last. If you want to be great, Jesus says, you need to be a servant. It's not about jockeying for position or trying to get more authority to make people bend to your will. It's the other way around because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. At which point, I'm guessing disciples had the same reaction you are, which is like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> they probably privately said, we got to work with this guy. That will never pull well on Fox News. This, that message just doesn't play. Does this make sense? Jesus is contrasting two different forms of government in the use of power. The government of God, the government of man, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the world, church and state. Okay, so let me illustrate to you how each of these uses power differently. Um, I'll give you an example, a symbol of this. I think this is a good one. Everybody knows what I got here. What is this? This is a sword, yes. But if you take a look at the sword and turn it upside down, it's a what? It's a cross. Good. The, the sword and the cross. In other words, the sword is wielded by the state. They control behavior and they enforce laws through the threat of punishment. However, the church doesn't carry a sword. It carries a cross. In other words, we know that we're actually saved by the love of God in Christ Jesus, him sacrificing his life. So we actually love people sacrificially to try to touch their heart, not just control their behavior. Now, I'm not saying the, the state is all bad or anything like that, okay? In fact, in a fallen world, you need the kingdom of man, the government of man to control people's behavior, or you would have anarchy, right? We actually obey the law primarily because of the threat of the sword. This is why you slow down when you see a cop. He's not going to get you with a sword or anything like that. But you slow down because you don't want a ticket. He will enforce the state's authority over you. It's why you put a lock on your bike. Because if you didn't, somebody would steal it. We're in New Jersey, okay? But if they got caught, they go to jail, right? That's why, this is why people generally behave. They don't break the law because the threat of punishment. That's how a civil society operates. The state controls our behavior and enforces law with the sword. And we can be thankful for that. Man's government doesn't actually care about motives. You don't care about why that guy doesn't punch you in the face, like, oh, it's because my, my heart's warm. You're just like, I'm glad the law is against that. Obey or else. Any questions? On the other hand, the church operates on the power of the cross, of self-sacrificing love. It's all about the heart. And this represents a fundamentally different way to inspire people to do the right thing. If you remember, Jesus campaigned for three years, okay, and then he was executed on a Roman cross at the hands of the state. The church leaders actually combined with the state. They said Jesus is so threatening to both of us that they crucified him on a Roman cross outside of the city gate as a warning to anyone else who would dare rebel against the system. And what his enemies didn't realize is that the sacrifice of Jesus would become the catalyst for the biggest game changer in the history of humanity. Because as he lay bleeding and dying on that cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And even a Roman soldier watching said, 
truly, this guy's from another world. Truly, he is the son of God. See, God's government is different. God's kingdom is not established with a sword, power over, but with a cross, power under, where the king lays down his life for his enemies out of love. In our place, Christ died for our sins. Why? So that you and I can have peace with God. We then get to receive his spirit, and then guess what? You and I get to live in a new way in the kingdom of earth. You understand that? And the symbol of God's kingdom is the cross of Calvary. It requires sacrifice. So you actually start loving people who aren't like you, who are outside of your tribe. You begin sacrificing for your neighbors. As Christ's followers, we're just following our king's example in suffering for the sake of Christ. Guys, that's how the Christian church was founded, by carrying a cross, the power under people. And that's something, then, the sword can never do, because the sword can never transform your heart. Only Calvary love, when you see someone give their life, can touch your heart. The cross and the sword the state, and the church. Now, the tension that you and I feel as Christians is that we all live in both kingdoms simultaneously. As Christ's followers called to be in the world but not of the world, we live right now in the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of man, really, but we serve in the kingdom of God. We live in the United States of America. That's the name of our government. We have a government, the form of our government is called democracy, which means we actually get a say in who wields the sword. That's amazing that they ask us. Every four years they ask us, who do you think should actually wield and exercise power? And we should be very thankful for that. Because of all the flawed forms of government out there in the world, each one imperfect and limited, I think ours is the best. Amen? But the Bible says our allegiance is first and foremost to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. In other words, you're called to be a Christian before an American. And in moments like these, when there's a lot of turmoil in the world, when there is financial uncertainty, when there is terrorism, when embassies get bombed, the temptation is to confuse these two. This is where believers get mixed up. You actually see this happen in Matthew 26 if you flip over there. When Jesus was arrested, it seemed like the end of the world to his followers. Remember, they're, they're hoping Jesus is going to rally the troops He's going to kick some Roman booty and liberate the Jews from oppression. So when those in power come to arrest Jesus, here's what Matthew says. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his what? His sword. And he drew it out and he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will what? Will die by the sword. Don't you think I could call my father and he'll give me 12 legions of angels if I wanted to use the sword? See, guys, in a moment of crisis, the temptation for followers of Christ is to put our trust in the sword, to pick it up and start swinging. Our country is going down the tubes. We got to get the liberals out of office. It's the gays. It's the big taxers. It's the capitalists. It's the... You get out your sword, the kingdom of man, the weapons of the kingdom of man, and just start swinging for the fences. We begin using power over to defend Jesus. That's what happened here for the disciples. And it's understandable, right? They're human. It's a moment of crisis for them. They were frightened. They actually loved God and wanted to see his kingdom come so badly that they adopted the ways of the world to make it happen. But Jesus rebukes him. He's like, put your sword down. This is not how my kingdom is going to be built on this earth. My kingdom is not about cutting off the ear of your enemy, 
but actually about healing the ear of your enemy. And he picked up the man's ear and he put it back on him and said, do what you came for. Wow. My kingdom, guys, he says, will only advance if I go to the cross. That's how I will establish God's authority, by demonstrating unsurpassable love. It's called grace to my enemies. I'm going to let them crucify me. And guys, that's the unique authority. That is the unique character of the kingdom of God that you and I are called to live in. It's very different than the kingdom of the world. The state wields the sword, but Peter, you will carry a cross. Where it, even when your faith is shaken, even when it looks like the cause of Jesus isn't winning, I want you to choose this radical power under love instead of slicing and dicing your opponents. And to underscore his point, I love this. Jesus just kind of mentions that he has the power of the sword if he wants it. He says, do you not think that I can call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was a Roman army unit of 5,000 soldiers. He's like, guys, I can snap my finger to have 60,000 angelic warriors here right now. But he says, I could kick butt, but that's not how God uses power. The kingdom of God, my father's government, it's not about power over my enemies. Ugh. It's power under. We choose love instead, even when we're persecuted. And then he reaches out and takes the ear and attaches it to the man who came to arrest him. Incredible. Even in a moment of crisis, Jesus keeps the focus on serving rather than defeating his enemies. The Bible says the cross is always more powerful than the sword. It may not be politically expedient, but the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. Amen? God's ways are higher than our ways. The cross is heavier than the sword, especially in moments of partisan tension. Peter wanted to prevent, let's be honest, he wanted to prevent what he saw as Jesus' defeat, but he didn't realize that Jesus had to die in order to gain a greater spiritual victory over Satan's sin and death. So the warning to you and me is actually very simple here. As modern Christians, in a moment of crisis, when we feel frightened about the way the country is going, or we feel confused because they're burning flags, or, or they're running Christians down, the question is, when you feel like Jesus is, is, is really, his reputation is getting slaughtered here, will you lay down the cross and pick up a sword to make it happen? Will you adopt the ways of the world, lock, stock, and barrel? Because you think, I got to defend Jesus. I got to defeat all the opponents. I got to get our guy into office, the conservative Christian guy. Because the ends always justify the means, but they actually don't. See, the government doesn't care about motives, but God does. And when believers choose the way of power over, instead of remaining faithful to love under, you may win the fight, but you will lose your faith. That's the funny thing about politics. It reveals what you're really trusting in, especially when, when a nation's in the ditch like ours is and loyalties are very divided. It reveals, do you believe that victory will come through the love of power or the power of love? This is the defining moment for the church when Jesus voluntarily allowed himself to be executed by the state because three days later, we saw the power of the kingdom of God. He was resurrected from the dead. And what I love about this is, is what Jesus didn't do after his resurrection. I mean, I, if I'm Jesus, the first thing I do after I'm raised from the dead is I'm coming back and I'm knocking on the door of the guys who set me up. Yes? Remember me, guy on the cross? I'm back! Yeah? 
He doesn't do that. <laughs> because the kingdom isn't about the politics of revenge, but about reconciliation. You can kill me, but I'm still going to love you. And guys, that's how Christianity spread for the first 400 years. The church exploded because it imitated their leader, Jesus. Christians were persecuted. They were put to death. They were set aflame. They were mauled in Colosseums, but they continued to love because they saw him die on the cross and come back. And they were willing to suffer and die for their faith. And as a result, Christianity just spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire in the first 400 years in spite of a very hostile environment. But then something funny happened. The Roman Emperor Constantine, you ever hear of him? He saw this kingdom movement growing in numbers. And in 312 AD, Constantine converted. Why? On the eve of a major military battle, Constantine claimed to actually have a dream, a vision, not of a sword, but a cross. And he heard the words in Latin, in hoc signo vinces, which means, in this sign, conquer. So Constantine had his soldiers paint a cross on their shield. And they went to war, they won the battle. Constantine was so impressed, he converted to Christianity. And that was a very savvy political move at this moment because Christians were now so numerous. And in 313 AD, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity across the empire, and it made him very popular with the people. That's what Constantine's religion was all about. He wasn't interested in the kingdom of God, carrying the cross, but in using religion to build his kingdom. He was the first politician to see that patriotism plus religion is a powerful combination. God plays well in politics. If the sign of the cross helps him win battles, great, I'll worship the Christian God, whatever works. So Constantine, guys, this is fascinating. He was the first in human history to combine the cross and the sword together. And in 380 AD, Christianity became the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. And this is when Christians got their first taste of political power. Because they started thinking, you know, uh, now that we're friends with uh, Constantine, maybe we don't have to turn the cheek anymore. <laughs> maybe that Connie and I are BFFs. Uh, we don't have to go the extra mile. Now that Rome's on our side and we have power over, we can partner with the government to enforce Christianity and advance the cause of Jesus. That sounds good, doesn't it? Because you know what? A, a, a sword, a cross, they kind of look the same anyway, right? So the church actually picked up the sword and it didn't take long for them to become seduced by its power. Only five years after Christianity became the state religion of Rome, the first heretic was put to death by the church. And what followed are the darkest centuries in church history. The most barbaric bloodshed the world's ever seen. The Inquisition. Heretics burned at the stake. You don't believe in Jesus? Off with your head. The Crusades. Wholesale slaughter of Muslims and infidels hunted down and decapitated as enemies of the state. And blood flowed down the streets of Rome and down the altar of the church. And guys, you have to see the demonic irony in all of this. In the name of the one who told his followers to carry their cross, they, they cut off the heads of their enemies. In the name of the one who said, love your enemy, the church burned hers at the stake. In the name of the one who said, put down your sword. The church just starts swinging for the fences, drunk on political power in this dream. We're going to advance Jesus' government with muscle of man. That's our history, guys. It's the sad history of the church. 
that when the sword and the cross are fused together, the church will compromise its witness to Christ every time. Because if you go to bed with Constantine, you wake up smelling like Caesar. The church spread across Europe for, for thousands of years because Christians gained land, property, wealth. They built cathedrals. You can still see them today in Europe. They are jaw-dropping. They're beautiful. But a thousand years later, they're all empty. Why? Because Jesus says, if you build the kingdom by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And honestly, guys, that's my fear for modern America. That's my heart. That today in America, we have settled for a Constantinian model of Christianity. That in our evangelical zeal to win the culture war at any cost, we have lost something precious. Because, Lord of the Rings, men think they can handle the one ring of power, but they were all of them deceived. That's the cautionary tale of Blinded by Might. It is a book by Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson. They are Christian insiders from the um, religious right. Both men helped draft the platform of the moral majority in the 80s and 90s, worked with Jerry Falwell very closely. And these are the guys who helped architect the strategy of getting conservative Christians elected to power positions in Washington. They made being Christian synonymous with, you know, voting Republican. And they sharpened their sword against all the enemies, liberals, Democrats, anybody on welfare, abortionists, evolutionists, gay rights activists, the list goes on. But this book is, it was a, it was a game changer because it's, it's honesty and it's humble confession is that both Ed Dobson and Cal Thomas, they look back on their days doing that. And they confess, they say, after all those years of playing hardball politics, the religious right has done more harm than good. That's why it's called Blinded by Might, Why the Religious Right Can't Save America. And I grew up kind of in, in that context. But it's heartbreaking to hear them tell the inside story. They literally say that by using the sword to gain political power in Washington, the church was blinded by power. Not, and you look at that today and you see it, right? Not only have Christians failed to transform Washington, we have caused many lost people to tune out to the real message of Jesus. Because they look at Christians who are so political and they say, see, whatever. They're the same as any other special interest group that's jockeying for power. For all they're singing about the cross, woo, they really swing a sword. It's just politics. It's an intriguing book if you want one to chew on and wrestle on this election season. Guys, at the end of the day, politics is always personal. It's always personal. It's not just history. It's not just civics. It affects you and me. It affects friends, people who don't know Jesus yet, and are leery of Christians who wield the sword. I was reminded of this on Thursday when I went and got my hair cut. Well, the guy who cuts my hair, his name is Steve. He's my friend. We've known him a long time, and Steve is gay, shattering all the stereotypes. Steve's cut my hair for 12 years. That's a lot of hair, all right? That's like, all right? And I've been inviting him to our church for some time, uh, but he has never come, honestly. I've, like, given him cards, all that. He's just never come. And uh, so I'm getting my hair cut on Thursday, and he says to me casually, so uh, I've decided to come to your church on September 30th. And I was like, I, like, you know, like it, the volcano starts going off inside. But I'm like, cool. You know, like, play it cool. Just play it cool. You know, don't, don't freak out. Don't, don't be weird, you know. And I was, I was surprised because Steve has moved closer, actually, to one of our campuses, but he's never attended our church. And so I've never pushed it. And he said, no, he goes, you know, there's a, there's a street fair uh, on Sunday, and I'm going to come uh, to your church with my, my friend, and, uh, and then we're going to go to lunch together. And I was like, that's awesome, dude. And he goes, yeah. And he's quiet. And he just goes, I just hope I fit in with, you know, your people. And I knew exactly what he meant, right? In other words, Tim, I see that you're a white, evangelical, straight Christian dude. (laughs) 
and your tribe hasn't been a big fan of my tribe over the years. And so Steve's coming to church in two weeks, and I started worrying, what if he sits next to one of you? <laughs> Politics is personal. I'm serious, because I'm like, I'm going to be up here talking, but it's going to make more of a difference who he sits next to. Does he end up sitting down and actually getting pricked by a sword of judgment, or does he feel the compassion of the cross? Does he feel the radical grace of the gospel? See, guys, politics is always personal. It always affects the people in our lives who cut our hair, who do our nails, who change our oil. And the way Christians in particular wield our power in public makes all the difference. Steve said to me, I said, why are you coming? He said, well, you know, I, I noticed how your church helped at the Eric Johnson house. You guys remember our outreach at the AIDS shelter? Yeah, let's hear it for that. We did a renovation of a homeless shelter for people who are HIV positive. Now, if you went there, do you remember? What did we go there? Did we go there with our swords and say, now, how did you contract HIV? Is it because you're a drug user? Is it because you were gay? Is it no, we didn't go there with a sword. We went there carrying a cross. And we said, we're going to paint the entire thing. We're going to give you new furniture. We're going to serve you hot meals because that's what Jesus did for us. He loved his enemies. Christ has loved me extravagantly. I have such love for you. Guys, that's power under the cross, and it's powerful because people see that. They say, that's the, who does this? The church of Jesus does this. That's how they use their power, not to divide and conquer, but to heal, to love, to restore. Guys, the truth is, when it comes to church and state, God's kingdom is not built by a conquering Caesar, but a crucified Christ. Amen? Can I challenge you this morning with three quick applications to wrestle through this fall? These are very simple, and I think they will help you stay on the right path as we navigate our nation's future. Number one, as a citizen of heaven, the Bible says you're an alien, you're an exile on earth. That's the Bible's perspective. Never forget, kingdom first. Kingdom first. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Would you put that teaching point up? I tried to make this very concise because the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else will be added unto you. In other words, you're a Christian. We are Christians before we are Americans. And everything hangs on us choosing power under, self-sacrificial love, even when it looks like we're losing, even if it looks like Jesus is being defeated and arrested. Do you trust in the power of the cross in this moment of crisis in our nation, or do you naturally reach for the sword for the solution? Kingdom first means that the ends do not justify the means. At work, you can argue, out-debate everybody at work, and you will win the debate, but you will lose your witness for Christ. Remember how Paul says, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels but have not love, I have what? Nothing. If I give everything I have to the poor, if I die as a martyr but have not love, I am nothing. A contemporary version of that might be, if I figure out a way to save the economy, <laughs> to, to create jobs, to balance the budget, to retire the deficit, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. You can gain peace in the Middle East and lose your soul. Guys, listen to this. You can win the White House but lose your soul and your witness for Christ. Never forget kingdom first, sword second. That's learning number two. As kingdom people, you've got to be very slow to pick up a sword, to mix politics with religion. Throughout history, whenever the church has partnered with the state in the pursuit of power, it has compromised our testimony for Christ. Our power comes in Calvary love, in our ability to imitate Jesus to a watching world. 
to serve people humbly who are hurting or on the fringe. We don't kill the wounded. We don't cut them off. We don't chop our legs from enemy, no matter how much we might disagree with them. Because scripture says our battle is not against flesh and blood. You know what that means? Republicans are not the enemy. Democrats are not the enemy. Gay rights activists are not the enemy. CEOs, Wall Street bankers, not the enemy, the 1%. They're not the enemy. If people are flesh and blood, it just means one thing. They are people to be loved and prayed for in the name of Jesus Christ. So our battle is a spiritual, not a political one. We wage wars against the powers and principalities of this dark world, the kingdom. But be careful about the language you use. When you say stuff like, we've got to take America back for God, or let's reclaim our country for Christ. I get that. I understand that. I grew up with that kind of language. But let me ask you, does that sound like the cross? Reclaim America for Christ. Or does it sound like the sword? It's power over language. When we call America a Christian nation, what that assumes, guys, is at some point in our history, we were operating wholeheartedly in the kingdom of God. Let me be very clear about this. I don't want you to mishear me. It's not, I'm not trying to be unpatriotic. There is no doubt our country has been blessed and influenced by Judeo-Christian values. We're thankful for that. But there's very little evidence that America as a whole ever had some golden age when we operated wholeheartedly with kingdom of God values. It certainly wasn't when we killed 20 million Native Americans, all right? Ouch. When we stole their land and pushed them all on reservations, that's not the kingdom of God. It wasn't when we enslaved three to four million Africans and had them shipped over here to work on plantations for cheap slave labor. Ouch, I know. But that's, that's, our, that's our country. Or when Americans, 600,000 people, brother killing brother in the Civil War. That's not the kingdom of God either. In fact, the further you go back in history, our history as a nation is like the history of our church. It's bloody. It has its bright spots, moments where it just makes you proud and moments that make you cringe and embarrassed. And you know what, guys? We need to own that. Can we just own that? As Christians, we're called to confess our sins so there can be healing. And you know what? When non-believers actually hear you talk openly and honestly about the past, about our sins, about our failures as a church, as a nation, it actually builds their trust because they realize you're being humble enough to say, we are not perfect at all. We've gotten this so wrong so many times. But then they're like, at least he's honest. At least they're courageous enough to look in the mirror instead of throwing rocks at me. And guess what? That's how you earn a hearing for your beliefs. It's called humility. Try this sometime. It's not being unpatriotic. It's simply saying, I'm a citizen of another kingdom. You may even make a convert if you start telling the truth. Be very slow to wield a sword. And finally, when it comes to issues of state, vote your conscience. I do. I thank God that we live under a government that values us enough to ask our opinion every four years. That's incredible. That's a privilege. That is a gift. Freedom is a gift. But freedom in Christ also means this. Good-hearted, intelligent, kingdom men and women can profoundly disagree on solutions to fix the state. We can disagree on ways to fix our country and still remain loving brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, it may surprise you to learn, I'll end with this thought, it may surprise you to learn that those 12 disciples all arguing, Jesus had followers on both sides of the aisle. Of the 12 disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. That means he worked for the government, the IRS. Simon the Zealot wanted to overthrow the IRS. He said, we got to conquer. In other words, 
Jesus called both conservatives and liberals to live in his kingdom. So whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, there's room for you. I know this will come as a surprise to some of you, but when we get to heaven, Jesus will not be there checking voting records or donor lists. Like, well, I see you went for Obama in 08, but you flip-flopped with Romney. Tell me about that. You know, None of it will matter. None of it will matter. In eternity, God the Father will be concerned with one thing. What did you do with my son Jesus? That's the central issue of everything. Did you make him king of your life? Did you pick up your cross and follow him out of reverence? Did you live in his kingdom while you were on earth? That's the bottom line of what God is always concerned with, and that's liberating, amen? Because if the kingdom of God is your primary focus, it means there's freedom whenever you debate the politics of man. It's nice to be asked our opinions, yay, democracy. But Christians realize any form of government is inherently flawed because it involves sinful people. And it's extremely limited. So it's not make or break, do or die. Whichever party wins the House or the Senate isn't going to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. They just get to wield the sword, which can never change hearts. So, so you vote for whoever you think will wield the sword or administer justice best, and then you pray for them. But don't get all hostile and aggressive and worked up about it. If you do, it reveals what your heart is really trusting in. The sword or the cross, the church or the state. Jesus said only one is the true hope of the world. Amen? Man, this stuff gets me fired up. I'm sorry. I get excited about this. Today's a little history and everything, but I'm setting this up also for next week. Um, we are out of time, so let me do this. Um, we'll pick up here next week. I want to close us in prayer. And would you do this just right now? Just bow your heads, all our campuses. Bow your heads. And if you're like, man, I, I want to be part of this kingdom of God. Just put your hands out. Just put your hands and say, man, I want to live in the kingdom of God. I'm done. I'm done just with politics. I am ready for the kingdom of God. Father God, right now, I'm praying. Lord, thank you for all these hands all over in the back. Just saying, you're saying, I want to live in the kingdom of God. Father, I thank you, Jesus, that you die on a cross as our king. And that your blood, Father, would cover all of our sins, all of our faults and failings. And we can be honest about that because it just makes your grace even more glorious. Father, right now, would you just send your Holy Spirit as a governor to rule over our hearts and our minds, Lord, what we think, what we say this week at work, at school. Lord, Father, how we use the influence and power that we've been given, Lord. There's so many people in our church who are powerful, God. You bless them with positions of influence. Right now, Father, we're lifting up our hands to receive your Holy Spirit. Cleanse us as your people. Let us be a chosen people, God, but use it to humbly serve this world that you so love. Thank you, Father God, for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your kingdom, which is coming. That's our future. We receive it now, and we live in it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.